Ayn Rand believed that taking ideas seriously means intending to live by ideas that you take to be true. How did she take ideas seriously in her own life? And how did she manifest a commitment to truth in her own day-to-day -day interactions with other people? Well, today, February 2nd, is Ayn Rand's birthday, and we are celebrating Ayn Rand's unique approach to living a philosophical life and her remarkable approach to ideas. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ben Baer, fellow at ARI, and with me is Dr. Harry Binswanger, a longtime associate and friend of Ayn Rand's, as well as a member of the board of directors of ARI. Welcome, Harry. Thank you. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. So, Harry, when most people think of what it means to be philosophical, they think of someone who lives a life of reading and writing, but contemplating questions and verities in a way that's detached from normal life. In what, would you, in what way would you say that Ayn Rand lived a philosophical life? She was very conscious and very introspective. She viewed everything she did as part of her life. And she thought every minute of her life was important. Her life was her highest value and it was always involved. I once asked her because her uh, approach to life was under attack by some of her uh, renegade friends, friends who had deserted her and abandoned her and were saying that she was making moral issues out of everything. And I asked her, I said, isn't every choice a moral choice? And she said, yes. And what she meant was every choice is your life or retards your life. And that's the way she approached every issue, whether it was uh, being on the stage of the Ford Hall Forum and talking about uh, a pressing political or social issue, or whether it was heating up soup on her stove, which uh, I saw her do many times when I visited. She served borscht that her cook had made for her during the day, and she warmed it up. And she, when she heated it up, she was staring with that same intent focus that she's famous for in the task of making the soup. So she had this very high-powered, uh, intensely focused mind that she applied to everything that she did. And that's what, to her, um, philosophy was for living. And that's what it meant that you used your mind to the fullest and wrung every ounce of value, every drop of value out of every activity you were engaged in. So another one of the kind of stereotypes that people have about what it means to be a philosopher or to be philosophical is that you're strictly concerned with kind of logic chopping, cut off from feelings. How did the Ayn Rand that you knew compare to this stereotype? Wow. I mean, she was the living refutation of that view because she was simultaneously intensely emotional and passionate 
with penetrating logical analysis. She liked very much John Herman Randall Jr.'s description of Aristotle as engaged in the passionate search for passionless truth. She was always on the premise of, I've got to know. There's a story, uh, when I got to know her really well personally, I was about 35 and she was 75. And uh, I was feeling about myself that I was becoming finally more mature uh, because we have delayed adolescence now in our culture and we had it back then. And I said to her, do you feel like you're always getting more mature? And she, she looked at me like, what, what on earth are you talking about? What's wrong with you? And she said, no. So wanting to recover, you know, my reputation, I said, well, do you feel like you're always learning more? And she said, oh, yes. And I don't know how I survived yesterday not knowing what I know today. That's what a philosophical life meant in, in, as applied to her, that she was always growing, always learning more. Uh, I came to appreciate a phrase that she used in her philosophical writing about epistemology. She always prefaced it with man is neither omniscient nor infallible. That's why he needs a science of epistemology. And I could see infallible. Yeah, you, you want to make sure you don't make a mistake. You don't want to contradict reality. So, of course, you need a guide to prevent it. But what is, you know, we're not omniscient have to do with anything. Part of the meaning of that is you're always learning more you're always growing or should be. And she was throughout her life expanding her knowledge. And as she said, you know, yesterday is different from today. Now she really understands and tomorrow she really understand on a higher level. And I definitely want to come back uh, later to talk more about some of the things that uh, you think she learned over the course of her career. Yeah. On the subject of, uh, passionate logic. One of her greatest passions was for, obviously, for writing fiction. It's what she's best known for. Uh, I want to talk about how does her passionate logic come up there. She, she was once asked if she was primarily a novelist or primarily a philosopher, and her famous answer was primarily both. What did she mean by this? Can you tell us a little bit more about what she thought these two disciplines had to do with each other, why they were so tightly connected? She wanted to write fiction to create and enjoy an ideal man. That was the goal of her writing, as she put it in an article by that title, to create Howard Rourke, Francisco Danconia, Hank Reardon, John Galt. And in order to do that, she had to understand what made a person 
a real hero, what made them ideal, what made them morally perfect. Well, what is moral perfection anyway? What is heroism? What is the good? What is consistency in relation to the good? Does it mean you never make a mistake? Does it mean, well, you uh, do some good things, but everybody's human? So she had to grapple with all kinds of philosophical issues in order to know what to have her ideal man be. So it's not, I mean, she had a, you know, generalized conception from earliest childhood of a hero, but she was not satisfied that she really understood what he would do and what he would not do until she thought more about it. And that's philosophy. So as she put it, I had to define my ideal man and I had to use philosophy, go into philosophy in order to do that. But I think she was, um, the key to Ayn Rand is that she understood long range. She understood the long range. So while other people were doing very short range actions, pursuing short range goals and short range goods and selling out their future to have a good time in the present, she understood that she was acting as in any moment as part of her lifetime. So she needed the long range vision that only abstract ideas can give you. Philosophy is the most abstract, the most long range, the deepest and broadest discipline there is. So she was just, she was interested in knowledge. She wanted to know what should I do? What should I present in my fiction as what a hero would do? And to answer that question, she had to have the most deep knowledge about existence, man, and choice. So that's philosophy. So I think you, you just touched on this issue a bit already, but uh, obviously while writing fiction was a big part of her life, it wasn't all there was to her life, there was more to it than that. And she, as you've stressed, saw philosophy as a guide to living life. So can you share with us maybe some observations about how you think she used this philosophical approach to understand both her own life and the, the other people in her life? Well, yes, she would try to understand what a person's ideas were. She would talk with you and ask, I'll give you an example of a question she asked me. She asked me, what saved you? She said this was a question that she asked many of her friends. What saved you? Meaning, what enabled you to resist all the bad ideas in the culture and uh, allowed you to come to objectivism, which is the truth, and, and to recognize it as the truth, which many people enjoy the novels, but they don't agree with or recognize the truth of the philosophy. And I answered immediately, the ability to recognize that 
most of what I was being taught was BS. And I said that without thinking, and she was not impressed by that. She said, well, but what about the, didn't uh, truth matter to you? I mean, wasn't, wasn't the value of truth? And I said, oh, yeah. Um, and another one I didn't say to her, but one overriding thing in my own life, just to be personal, was my life is important. My life is unbelievably important. I'm important to myself. Uh, but um, she would ask that of people because she wanted to understand how different people approached life. And she knew her own answer to it. And she was comparing her answer to their answer. But it was it was more than that. Um, I've told this story before about just one little thing about how she used philosophy. And that, that was really the question, right? How did she use philosophy and understand other people and herself? Well, I'll tell two stories. One of them is told elsewhere, but I don't think it's generally known. Uh, in elementary school in Russia, she saw a girl whom she thought might be a kindred spirit. The girl seemed to be independent and in focus. So she approached the girl in the cafeteria and without any preparation, she said, what's the most important thing in life to you? Now that, I mean, how many Kids, do you know they would come up and ask you that out of the blue that you barely know? What's the most important thing in life to you? And the girl said, my mother. And instantly Ayn Rand lost all interest in her. Uh, she said, that ideal crashed for me then. The other story I was going to tell um, is uh, I went into her apartment once and we went to the room where the TV was and uh, the cat had knocked something over. And the cat was named Tommy for Tommy Aquinas, uh, who, who was one of the best philosophers, even though a religionist, but he was an Aristotelian. And she named her cat Tommy. And I looked down at Tommy who was walking by and I said, bad cat. And she said, no, good cat who took a bad action. Now, I can't tell you how many people don't get that, that there's a distinction between judging a, an action and judging a person. And it's possible for a good person to take a bad action. It's an interesting question. Is it possible for a bad person to take a good action? I would say no. He could take an action which is the right action to take, but unless he resolves to change his character, that would be good actions. But the fact that uh, Hitler helps an old lady across the street or whatever you think is a good action, uh, pays a subordinate what he deserves to be paid, doesn't make that a good action in that context because he's paying him to be a good Nazi. 
So it's knowledge is contextual. That's one thing that Ayn Rand taught me. So uh, those are two stories about how she was constantly identifying things in terms of the philosophical fundamentals. It was, you know, she talked about it in term, uh, talked about using philosophy to define her ideal man in writing. But I think she obviously just loved philosophy too. She loved the understanding that she got from it and valued the field in and of itself as well. It's on the subject of uh, distinguishing between uh, judgment of a person's actions and on and judging their character. One of the ways that we think objectively about other people is deciding whether or not they've earned our respect as a person. Do you have any experiences you could share with the way she judged other people in this regard? People who she judged had yeah. earned her respect, who hadn't, and the difference that it made for how she treated her, treated them. Yeah, uh, you had this sense. She had these incredible, she had dark uh, irises next to her pupil, so made her eyes look extra big because it all looked like pupil. And she had this focused stare and you had the sense that she could see into your soul, but she couldn't. That was, that was an illusion. And uh, she judged people by what they said and what they did. So you could uh, say something innocuous and she would see incredibly bad implications on that and she would get angry or upset and ask you about it. And then when she understood, oh, that's what you meant? Uh, then the anger would be gone, but she did not. Uh, she she did not have stomach feelings really about people, or if she did, she kept them to herself, and she never condemned anybody until, um, I mean, if she had anything to do with them, until she got gathered a lot of evidence, and she was taken advantage of a lot by people who. Uh, she gave the benefit of the doubt to over and over again. But eventually, you know, if you let people show who they are over time, it comes out. So uh, I, I don't know if that really answers your question about uh, she, she tried to find out what they were thinking and she saw what they were doing. And that is how she judged other people. And that is how she judged herself. Maybe as a follow-up to that question, uh, I'm curious to hear how she dealt with people, for example, who disagreed with her who, or who wanted to argue with her. Did she treat uh, some differently based on the respect that she that they had earned with her in the past or if they're just a random 23-year-old oh, asking yeah. a question at a lecture? Are they different? Yeah, she was very, uh, she, in, in a way that's not modern, she was very aware of a, what a person had earned by his uh, achievements or lack thereof. So 
I, I once, after a lecture, you know, there would be weekly lectures that she would answer questions at, and afterwards people could come up around her and talk to her one-on-one, -on -one, or almost one-on-one, -on -one. and uh, there was one conversation I heard where a young person was, I don't know, maybe 20, was, was um, engaging in back and forth with her, where she would say something and he would say, but, or I don't remember the content. And at a certain point she looked at him and she said, are you arguing with me? Because the premise of the event was that people were in agreement with her philosophy. And that's why they had come there. This was regular weekly meetings designed specifically for fans of Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. And, uh, this was some pipsqueak, you know, young upstart. But then if somebody had achieved something and was more mature, she cut them a lot of slack. So she would never have said anything like, are you arguing with me to someone say like Ludwig von Mises, who she respected enormously, even though he had tremendous uh, philosophic errors. His strength was in economics and he was a, an embattled loner fighting for capitalism at a time when the whole world was collectivist. And she was always uh, very admiring of him and very uh, polite. Even He was the one who got mad with her. Uh, another example is when she was writing The Fountainhead, even though she had published We the Living, Fountainhead was her second book, uh, maybe her third if you count Anthem. Uh, she wrote a letter to Frank Lloyd Wright. And she wrote a letter saying she'd like to meet with him and talk with him and get his ideas. And it was extremely uh, admiring and polite and tentative. You know, I mean, it, would you grant me the honor of uh, an interview with you. I, let me tell you a little bit about who I am. Uh, and that was because he was Frank Lloyd Wright at the pinnacle of his career. This was in the 30s when he's designing Falling Water, uh, his greatest structure in my book. Um, and she w had one novel that had sold less than 3,000 copies because of certain accidents that happened to the type. Um, and uh, she was a nobody, you know, essentially a nobody. She had some status and uh, she referred to that to introduce herself. But later, after she wrote to Fountainhead and after she met Wright, although she was still polite to him, there was a big change. <laughs> and she told me privately that he was a second-hander personally and she she didn't really admire him, although she loved his, his work in his architecture. That was one thing that was a constant theme of hers, that it was tragic that the great achievers in their work didn't carry the same rationality and independence into every aspect of, her, of their lives. Frank Lloyd Wright was an example of that. 
So I especially like to hear uh, something about what it was like to work with Ayn Rand on philosophical projects for a number of years. You were the editor and publisher of the Objectivist Forum, and she was philosophical advisor. What was it like to receive uh, feedback from her on your writing, and did you ever give her any? Yes, and you know, um, there's a there's a big story there in that when I began, when I signed up to do the Objectivist Forum, it was uh, with a uh, endorsement of sorts from Ayn Rand. I wanted her endorsement. I wanted it to be the Objectivist Forum, and uh, she agreed to do that. And when I told a friend who was also an intellectual about my having agreed to start under her consultancy, the Objectivist Forum, he said, you're in for nothing but trouble. She's going to find fault with everything you do. The issues will be delayed. Uh, I personally don't want to write for your magazine, because I was calling him to ask for him to write for the magazine, because there'll just be too much uh, trouble with Ayn Rand as your editor. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. Well, I never had any trouble. I never had any trouble, and it was clear to me that this fellow who left objectivism uh, did not understand the ideas and was not uh, rational, really, when it came down to him, push came to shove. He was not independent more than he wasn't rational, uh, although that's a form of rationality. So when I worked with her, I worked with her for um, two years, and there was one article that I wrote that I, the, I, the agreement was I would submit drafts of my articles to her uh, for review, for consistency with objectivism and general quality. Uh, and the other authors, I would tell her what they were writing about, what the theme was. But since I was editor and I was really the one carrying the flag of objectivism, even though I said I wasn't official, I wasn't producing official objectivism, she wanted more review of what I was doing. And uh, actually, there were two. The very first thing I wrote, she didn't think was good in, um, in style, but that's another issue. But I wrote what turned out to be my best article called The Possible Dream. In the first draft, she very sweetly told me, I don't think this is usable. I think you have to start over. And she told me why, and she told me what when we went through it, and she told me what the problems were. So I did something else for that issue, and I rewrote the article, and it came out great. But other than that, uh, she agreed with what I wrote, and uh, I never had any problem with her. And in fact, as you asked, I edited her one time, and uh, that was a Ford Hall Forum lecture she gave that I was reprinting in my periodical, The Objectivist Forum, and the transition from speech to written form, even though she had a manuscript for the speech, 
always requires a little, you know, filling in here and cutting back there and changing of uh, commas and where do you put the commas, you know? So um, we had an editing session and I had a lot of things, little things, you know, that I wanted to change, little uh, wording or punctuation, um, fussy stuff. There was one substantive issue, which we can get into if you want, but basically there's a lot of little details. And I said, somebody told me that I'm too fussy as an editor, that I go overboard. Do, do you think so? And she said, a little bit. But now I can go back to your first question with that. I mean, it, which just shows you that you know, how uh, agreeable she was if you were dealing in reason. Because I always had reasons for what I said. The issue was, are some changes worth our time? At one point during this very editing, I asked her about the law of identity. And I don't remember what the question was, but she said, well, why are we spending so much time with this manuscript? other than that things are what they are, the law of identity, that everything has a precise meaning and precise words need to be used. So the precision that we're bringing in here, the straightening out, is all based on the premise that everything is something. So that, that and I had not thought of that. You know, it was obvious once pointed out as great truths always are. Um, do you want me to go into the substantive issue I raised with her? I'd be curious to hear. Yeah. Okay. So in the speech, it was a speech on Reagan and it was called, um, the age of mediocrity. Uh, and the topic of abortion was an important part of that speech. And she had said in a speech, uh, you can argue, uh, you know, abortion is, is not called for, I forget the exact wording, but the issue was in the last month or two when the fetus is viable. So she had introduced the idea of the standard of abortion is viability. And I, pointed out with her that that was not her position, that her the viability was a potential, that it could live if it was taken out of the womb. And actually, she had corrected somebody years previously who had tried to put forth the viability standard. And she said to me, but it's got the human form. And I said, yeah, but it hasn't lived yet. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what I said because I was more focused on what she said was more interesting to me than what I was saying. And I know she said, but it has the human form. And I argued that that was not enough. And she said something back in response and I said something in back in response. And she took the pencil out of my hand, the editing pencil, took the manuscript, struck through what she said 
and wrote a human being's life begins at birth and it was over <laughs> and that's the way it was printed so uh that was a substantive issue i was criticizing her position is insufficiently radical she came to agree and closed the issue i like that story uh the earlier article you mentioned of yours, The Possible Dream, uh, we've subsequently republished on New Ideal, and you and I did an interview about it a year and a half ago or so, so people can check that out. Um, you, you talked about asking for her feedback on your editing. I think you mentioned once that you also asked her about what she thought of your overall quality as a philosopher and that she had uh, interesting feedback on that. Did you want to share that? Uh, it didn't come up in, yeah, it didn't come up in exactly that way. I have two stories on that. Um, I was, I think it was after a Fort Hall forum, I was, or somewhere, I was in a hotel room with Ayn Rand and several of her friends and associates after a speech she gave and john nelson a professor of philosophy was uh present and was talking with me about his views which were pretty bad and she told me she was overhearing my arguing with nelson who was friendly to objectivism and he was in the workshops on objectivist epistemology so it's not just some random professor but he he was not free of the analytic tradition. And she told me afterwards, I like the way your mind works. And that was like the best compliment I ever got in my life. That's exactly what I wanted from her. Um, another, uh, but then another time when, you know, after I really had gotten to know her and was spending a lot of time with her playing Scrabble and discussing philosophy, all you know weekly several times a week uh she told me um you know i thought you were the perfect linguistic analyst at the start you know this is she's telling me this in 1980 or 81 about 1965 when this conversation i'm going to relate it correct i said linguistic analyst why and she said, do you know the first question you asked me? Now, I, the big Ayn Rand hero worshiper, didn't remember the first question. I, but she, who remembered everything, remembered the first question I asked her. And, and I said, what was it? And she said, if scientists in the laboratory made a being that was exactly like a human being, but out of, you know, in the laboratory, they synthesized it and it was exactly like a human being in every respect. Would it have rights? I think was the, was the question. And I said, well, what did you say? And she said, I said, if it's exactly like a human being in every respect, it would be a human being. And I asked her, what did I say? And she said, you seem very impressed. <laughs> I had no comeback to that. But it's interesting, and there's a kind of moral. 
because that wasn't really my question. My question was really about the relationship of consciousness to mechanical causality. And the actual question was, what is the relation of consciousness to the processes in the brain, which are physical? And I asked it in this kind of roundabout way, if, if you created something out of physical stuff that could, and I said exactly like, I, I meant, could it have consciousness? That's, that was really my question, but I didn't know. I was uh, 20 years old. I didn't know how to ask a question. Not only was I 20 years old, the only source on objectivism was a few newsletter articles and for the new intellectual. So there was so little out there published about philosophy and how to think philosophically that I get a free pass on that question. So earlier you had mentioned you'd asked her if she had ever matured. She said, no, but I've learned a lot. What can you tell us about what you observed about her growth as a thinker and, and what she had learned over the course of her career? I could see just directly from what uh, she was saying or she had taught to uh, Leonard Peikoff and others who were directly getting material from her. I could see gain in clarity in uh, taking ideas which were right, but which we didn't quite know how to apply. And I don't think she knew quite how to apply and getting the exact application of them and systematization of them clearer. And the big one was her trichotomy, which is really the key to objectivism and so radical between objective, subjective, and intrinsic. Originally, I think, I'm pretty sure she thought that object, the, ob, the trichotomy applied even on the perceptual level. I think at the workshops on objectivist epistemology, which she conducted and which I attended, there are statements where she says things like sense perception is objective if anything is. By seven years later, she had gotten clearer on the um, fact that objectivity applies only to the volitional conceptual level. So that automatic things are not objective, they're not subjective. And that intrinsic, they're, they're just the given. And the intrinsic does not denote a component of the objective, which is what we thought at the beginning and she seemed to be toying with. But the intrinsic was just a wrong theory of how consciousness works. I won't go into elaboration on that, but this is, she named her philosophy objectivism. Now, true, she wanted to name it rationalism, but that was taken for a bad view, Plato. But a second choice was objectivism from objective. And I once asked her, how long 
have you had this idea of objective, intrinsic, subjective? Meaning a general outline, not the way she got it really clear later. And she said, oh, I've had that as far back as I can remember. Which is staggering because that's the breakthrough that enabled her to uh, solve all the problems that Aristotle, for instance, couldn't solve, is the fact that something can be both freely chosen and governed by the identity of consciousness and still in touch with reality. It doesn't become subjective merely because you choose to process it. If you choose to process it rationally, it's objective. Even when you're mistaken, it can be objective. So there's a tremendous integration of what she called the primacy of existence with her revolutionary theory of free will that plays into the concept of the objective properly understood. And I think she only got it all together in the 70s. And as I say, I I was first introduced to her in 64 and she was writing on philosophy after Atlas Shrugged from 1961 on. So that's one huge thing that she got clear on. But I think she got clear on many other things like the concept of entity, which at first she was using to sort of mean existent, which she later called existent. And then the idea of entity as a perceptual object uh, that is the bearer of attributes got crystallized in her mind. And there's another aspect of this question, which is her uh, continuing to want to learn more about the world and other people and her, her curiosity. And there was a story I, I, I definitely want to hear you tell about uh, oh. the time that a former associate came to visit her. Well, the two big betrayals in her life, I mean, industrial strength betrayals by real villains who had posed as her closest friends were the Brandons, Barbara Brandon and Nathaniel Brandon. And, uh, you know, she severed all, when she found out that they were lying to her, uh, she severed all relations with them and published an article in the, her publication, The Objectivist, saying that they were immoral and they had nothing to do with her or her philosophy anymore. And their past writings under her editorship were still valid, but she had no idea what they would do in the future. And she was through with them. It was actually a very calm, measured article, not a diatribe in any way. is is almost Olympian. Uh, so um, that was 1968. In 1980-ish, she got a phone call from Barbara Brandon. Could we meet? Now, my idea of Ayn Rand was, hell no. But that isn't what she said. She agreed to meet with Barbara. And uh, 
in her apartment. So Barbara came to her apartment and uh, I asked her, why was she doing this? She said, I'm curious. You know, what was she thinking? Because Ayn Rand really couldn't understand how a person could hold contradictions. It was so foreign to her. Uh, she always said, she often said, I don't understand psychology. Now, actually, she understood psychology better than anybody, including respected historical psychologists. And I'd be prepared to defend that if challenged, but that's not the point. Point is, I think what she meant is, I don't know how people can do to themselves what they do to themselves. I don't know how things stand in their minds. They blank things out. They engage in this double thing. I'm not putting words in her mouth. She can get, they, you know, all evasion involves self-deception, right? No, no, it's not real. And don't come back with that thing that doesn't exist because I don't want to see it. It doesn't exist. It's a, it's a kind of, Self-deception, how do you do that? How does the same mind say it's there so I have to turn away from it and the turning away from it consists of it's not there. That's the formula of all evasion. Uh, so she didn't understand how people could do what they do and how it stood in their minds. And, and here was a case of a monument, of a person who seemed to be her gal frightened that's not the right word her her protege uh uh for writing she was going to write and so forth uh, not fiction and understood her philosophy and been with her since 1951 uh gave lectures on efficient thinking for her uh, the institute she stood behind uh, by nathaniel brennan her 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 uh, uh pro, actual project and threw it all away and turned against her what, what's going on so she was curious she wanted to know she met with her footnote to that it turned out the reason why barbara wanted to meet with her is she was writing a biography and she wanted ein to cooperate and that came out in a subsequent phone call after the meeting she called I'm back and she said, you know, I'm, I'm writing a biography and I'd really like to have you uh, interviewed for it or cooperate with it in some way. And Ayn told me like the next day or two days later, she said, no, and don't ever call me again. And she slammed down the phone. She said, Barbara in did her biography and in it she presents that last phone call as if it always oh, is sorrowful you know I'm sorry things to me. it's a complete lie complete lie from what Ayn Rand told me the a couple of days maybe a day after it happened so uh tells you something about that biography but more importantly it tells you uh Ayn Rand was she said i'm not really like howard rourke i want to know more about people and what they're thinking and what 
how they are reacting to what I'm saying than he did. He was more aloof from people than I am. And this is an example. Continuous with the, the theme of how she was always trying to learn more about the world, uh, you'd think that if she if she were doing that, she would also come to new, uh, unexpected, even surprising conclusions about the world. Uh, are there examples of that? Oh, yeah, there were um, examples of, of things that both in philosophy and in current events, um, there was, for instance, uh, Muhammad Ali. She admired Muhammad Ali. Now, Muhammad Ali was a black Muslim. I don't know if you know what the black Muslims were, but they were horrible, horrible, vicious, predatory. They were like the ancestors of the Black Panthers. But Muhammad Ali was, of course, a great boxer, uh, one of the greatest of all times, but he was also very proud. You know, I am the greatest. He was, he was unapologetically proud. And she even, uh, if I think I have this right, would have loved to have cast him in a minor role in Atlas Shrugged the movie. So she, uh, I, I didn't join her in that. That was one uh, surprising thing about the world. Um, she was vehemently anti-Reagan, vehemently, uh, based in a, a good measure on his support for restriction of abortion, but also his general bringing of religion into politics, which changed the Republican Party for the worse forever after. She was uh, passionately anti-Reagan. She voted for Democrats a couple of times because the Republicans were putting forward people who would be like Trump today, people who were really bad and had bad ideas and were corrupting the party. And I wanted to talk about the one in philosophy that absolutely floored me and the person who asked the question. I was in uh, her apartment with um, an economist who was a student of her philosophy. And was in, agreed with it. And we were talking about the law of identity. And he said, "If imagine you've got a wheel that's turning and there's a spot on the wheel and the wheel is revolving, but the law of identity means at any given instant, that point on the wheel is somewhere. A is A, it is somewhere at every instant. And she looked at him and she said, it isn't anywhere. Now, this completely floored both of us. What do you mean it isn't anywhere? And she went on to talk at some length about the fact that something in motion is in motion. It's not at a spot. The concept of location, she said, depends upon rest. To be in a position, a thing has to be at rest. And it's in transit between 
positions if it's moving. She said you can you can say where it is in the sense of an interval that it's between, like a car outside right now is between 34th and 35th Street. She lived on 34th Street. A car, you could say a car out there is going up 3rd Avenue uh, or down Lexington would be more like it. And it's between 34th and 33rd. But you can't say where it is with the kind of precision that you could of a thing at rest because it isn't at one position, it's moving. And this is a new concept of the law of identity. This is that change is not something you try to freeze out and deny to get to an instantaneous position, that its identity is to be changing. If it's changing positions, it's not at a location. It's in transit between, and you can make, you can narrow it, but only to a certain degree. And along with that, something that I already, I think I understood was, there are no instants in time. There are no instants. That would be some time that doesn't, a zero length duration. There's no zero there, just like there's no zero width point, that all points and instants are intervals. I wrote an article after this session uh, called Identity in Motion. Uh, There's only about a a page and a half, you know, only about a thousand words or, or 800 words. And she agreed with everything in it. And I said what I'm saying now about instants and points. So that was revolutionary. And that's influenced my whole uh, philosophy of mathematics, which is what I'm working on now. So that was flabbergasting when she said, it isn't anywhere. What? You, the big advocate of everything is something. It isn't anywhere. But when she explained it, it made perfect sense. So apart from some of the examples you've already shared, and of course, apart from your having read all of her philosophical works, were there were there any ways your friendship with her influenced your development as a philosopher yourself? Yeah, there were many ways in which uh, her fr- my friendship with her influenced my philosophy. I would say the two I would pick out. Uh, before I knew her really well, um, I, she, she put out a call for papers for her publication, The Objectivist, and I wrote an outline for one on art, which is another special interest of mine, philosophy of art. And she told me it was rationalistic. And this was, uh, and she explained why and what she meant by rationalistic. This was the first time I had heard that adjective applied to an intellectual product as as a a kind of way of looking at it, that it was rationalistic. Um, And that started me on a mission of eliminating 
rationalism from my thinking. Rationalism, she meant by it, the attempt to deduce things from castles in the air, from, from arbitrary premises, as opposed to starting with the facts of reality, building up generalizations induced from observing reality, and then going higher and higher, all of it tested by reality, based on reality, derived from reality. So it's reality-driven, as opposed to, here's, here's the example she gave of uh, reductio ad absurdum rationalism. One philosopher says, man has only two eyes, so we can only see two things. We think there are many things, but that's an illusion produced by our senses. We have only two eyes, we can only see two things. Another philosopher comes along and says, no, that's all wrong. The illusion isn't that uh, we think we see many things. That's true. The illusion is we have many eyes. We think we only have two eyes. Now, that's a, that's a kind of rationalist joke. You know, you start from something arbitrary. You have only two eyes. You can only see two things. Oh, yeah, it sounds kind of good in a sort of floaty, out-of-context, unconnected-to-reality way. And then you move from there. Descartes starts with, I think, therefore I am. And do you know that he deduced their rule from that? He claimed to deduce there are whales in the ocean. So rationalism is a tendency to exalt logic without observation. Logic severed from the real world. And that's what I was engaged in in this uh in this article, and that was a revolution in my method to try and reorient myself. It took me many years, uh, but I finally got the idea of starting with reality. The other thing that uh, she fed into my development was inspiration. She was such a powerful presence. She was such a dynamo of passionate ideas uh, that it was wonderful to be around her. It was like the lights were turned on everywhere and you'd been in, in a cave, like Plato's cave, that you've been watching the shadows on the, on the cave wall cast by a fire behind you that you couldn't see. And uh, you came out in the real world and there was all this light that's what it was like to be around her. That the lights went on, the sun came out, the the um, energy, the passion uh, was. You know, it wasn't like being around an, any other person. There was electricity in the air, and that was, you know, gave you the fuel to fight your own battles. Well, Harry, thank you for uh, shedding all this light on uh, your experience with Ayn Rand and sharing them with our audience today. I'm mindful of your time, so I think we should start to wrap up. Uh, before we do, I want to give our audience just a couple of resources that they can check out if they want to learn more about some of the things we talked about today. Uh, you have a lengthy interview in the book 
100 Voices, an Oral History of Ayn Rand, which uh, you can buy on Amazon. Uh, you can read these kind a number of other anecdotes like the ones you told us today, not only from you, Harry, but from a whole cast of other people that she knew uh, over the course of her life, 99 other people, in fact. Uh, so that is a highly many, recommended Many resource. of them famous, many of them famous names. Yes. Uh, uh, is, Mike Wallace, Mikel Welsh, I think are in there. And uh, the second item is a series of articles or a multi-part article that you wrote originally for your publication, Object uh, The Objectivist Forum, but which we've republished uh, also in New Ideal. And that's Ayn Rand's Philosophic Achievement that comes in four parts. Here's a link to the uh, first part, which you can use to, to then read the whole thing. I highly recommend that as well talking about some of the ideas that you touched on today as especially revolutionary. If you have other questions you'd like addressed uh, philosophically uh, from the Ayn Rand Institute, we are beginning a new Q&A podcast, and you can send those questions to experts at aynrand.org. Starting soon, we will spin this podcast off. We used to do it on New Ideal Live. We'll be, doing, we'll be answering these questions on a regular basis. If you enjoyed today's podcast, uh, please subscribe to our channel on YouTube, click the bell to get notifications for when we go live or post new recordings. Uh, if you're watching the recording, please like, comment on, share it to help attract new viewers through the YouTube algorithm. Same thing if you're watching on Facebook. And if you have any questions about today's episode or suggestions for future topics, please send us an email to newideal at einrand.org. We read everything that comes in and reply to many of them. So uh, thanks for your time today. And thank you again, Harry, for uh, really a uh, excellent discussion talking about uh, a figure who's really important to us uh, celebrating what is, I believe, her 119th birthday. 19th birthday. Thank you. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.